Uh, we're in the book of First Peter, chapter 2. And the last uh, message before we took our trip was from First Peter 2, 1 to 10. And I was talking about how does God, that's the end of the message. If you could click on the first slide, that'd be great. We talked in, from 1 Peter uh, 2, 1 to 10, and we talked about how God sees us. And so God sees us as his chosen people. Let me read this verse to you from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Navigating life's highway, how does the world see me? So last week, we looked at this verse in 1 Peter 2, verse 9. You are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we talked about how important it is for us to see our lives the way God sees us. We're chosen. We're part of this royal family of his. We're children of God, men and women of God, sons and daughters of God. We're God's own possession. The Bible tells us that he purchased us with his own blood. And we have a purpose to proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That doesn't mean this time we sing in the church on Sunday morning. That means the life that we live out in the world. And that is the segue to this morning's topic. Because when we understand how God sees us and how we're to see ourselves in Christ, we also need to be understanding and concerned about how the world sees us. Because how the world sees us is going to impact our witness. The world can accuse us of a lot of things, and it will. But how it really sees us, meaning the type of example we leave before them that is irrefutable is what I'm talking about. Our witness is to be our life, and it's only our daily witness, how we live out our faith, who we are in Christ in the marketplace, that will give credibility to what we say and how people view us as believers in Christ. So, I started out this as saying, how does the world see us? But I want to pose this question, really. How should the world see us? The world may see us one way, but how should the world see us? And what are we to be in this world uh, as we live out our life of witness for Christ? I'm going to give you six things this morning, six very simple things but within them are some very profound things for you to reflect upon and think about. The first one is this. The world should see us as a light in a dark and hopeless world. As a light. The Bible throughout the scriptures is re replete with this instruction to say, you are the light of the world. It calls God the light of the world. We're to be the lights of the world. We're to shine in the darkness. We're not to hide our testimony under a bushel, are we? We're not to be undercover Christians. There's no secret agent believers. And sometimes we live that way. There were a time when, when I was kind of embarrassed to take my Bible and my notebook into McDonald's. You know, I didn't, I, you know, it's like I didn't want anybody to confront me. 
We're not to be secret agent Christians. Look at the first two verses of 1 Peter 2. Verses 11 to 12. It says, But I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul. Verse 12. Having your conduct among the Gentiles, honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak evil against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they observe. No, those are very powerful words. Your conduct, your good works, which are observable, they may glorify God in the day of visitation. So here's the first point under that, that subpoint, under that first point I want to make. A light does not dabble in the darkness. Now, I've dabbled in the darkness in my life after I was a child of the light. That's not to be a characteristic of a child of light, yet many of us have backslidden in our lives, right? Where we've dabbled in the darkness or we've considered the darkness. It doesn't matter whether you do it. Jesus said even the thought is equal to the act. And if we continue to think it, we will do it. We're, we're to be sojourners or pilgrims. What is that? We talked about that in the very first message. It's somebody who doesn't belong and somebody who's passing through. You don't belong to this world anymore. You've been bought with a price. You've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. You've been saved and you've been cleansed and you've been sanctified and you've been set apart. You're now a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You don't belong to this world anymore, but you're just passing through. So the world doesn't own you and you don't owe the world your allegiance or your obedience. And darkness no longer has a hold on you because the power of the blood of Christ has broken the power of sin and death. You say, well, it sure doesn't feel like Kirk. Well, that's why Paul says you got to reckon it. The word reckon is a Texan word. <laughs> but in the Greek, it means to calculate, to account, to balance a ledger. It means that every day, you know, my dad used to have a checkbook. And uh, he, wasn't, he was a great man with finances of large corporations. But when it came to his own personal finances, he made me downright nervous. He would go into the store and he would buy stuff. He'd write a check for it. And then he'd do nothing with his checkbook register. And I'd say, Dad, aren't you going to write that in? And he'd go, I'll write it in later. And he'd do that over and over and over again, and then his checks would bounce. I mean, in his own personal life, and he's making a lot of money, but he'd still bounce checks. I loved him. He was a great dad, but it drove me crazy. I said, Dad, write it down. I'll do it later. But if you don't write it down, then how do you know what your balance is? If you don't account yourself dead indeed unto sin every day, but alive unto God and unto righteousness, you won't know what your balance is. You need to reckon. I reckon. I reckon you need to reckon. Verse 12, a light brings forth good works naturally. 
So I've told you this before, but when you're a believer, when you're, when you're saved, it is now unnatural for you to do the works of darkness that you once reveled in. And you know what? You may go back to them, but Peter will tell us later on that it's like the dog going back to eat its own vomit. I'm sorry before lunch that I had to say that, but it's pretty gross, isn't it? Isn't that the grossest thing about a dog? That's why I have cats. Sorry, all you Texas dog lovers. But I'm looking, I'm going, dog, what are you doing, dude? But yet, that's our lives sometimes, isn't it? A light should not be unnatural to itself. It should bring forth good works naturally. Our message may be rejected, but our works should always glorify God. I love in the old King James Version... And I've got a dear friend that I've been ministering to for years, and he's now really just gotten excited about the Bible and about Jesus. It's really kind of cool. And he wants to read the old King James Bible. I don't, you know, that's cool. I did too at first. He says, I like it better. I like, I like the language. I, it seems more spiritual to me. In the old King James Bible, they use the word conversation in the place of the word conduct in verse 12. It says, having your conversation honorable among the Gentiles. And I kind of like that. Because in the old English understanding of conversation, it was not only what you said, it was what you did. And Jesus said, now follow me on this logic, out of the abundance of your heart, what? Your mouth speaks. And James will tell us that what you say is what you're going to do. So your conversation is not just, so you've got to watch your mouth because, you know, you can kind of restrain yourself sometimes, but your mouth is kind of like giving you away. Yeah. Your mouth kind of gives away what's really in your heart. So sometimes listen to yourself. Or you may have a spouse who will lovingly help you remember what you just said. I know I don't. Anyway, um... Number two, we should be to the world respectful and obedient members of society. Now, in this day of anarchy that we live in, again, I thought we were beyond that. But man doesn't change apart from Christ. We just get on a cycle. And we went through that in the 60s, didn't we? Anarchy. And now we're going through it in the 2018s or teens. Anarchy. It's craziness. But we should be respectful and we should be obedient members of society. Look at verses 13 to 14. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. Again, I believe believers should be not burning buildings, not throwing uh, chairs or, or breaking windows. They should be obedient. They should be people filled with optimism. I mean, you may say, well, this world isn't very... No, we have a God who is winning, and he'll win in the end. We can be optimistic. We win. 
Read the end of the book. And we win big, to quote somebody. And it's a beautiful thing. <laughs> we're not only going to win, we're going to win big. So we should have obedience, optimism, and we should be leading the dialogue that's constructive, not destructive. Our Facebook post, maybe? Twitter, Tumblr, Tweeter, whatever. You tweet, you twit, and you do all those things. And James says, but you shouldn't. How can a tweeter twit? What he twits when he tweets? James chapter 25, verse 6. Anyway. <laughs> we are to do everything for the Lord's sake. Why, why when you obey the government, why when you're a good citizen are you giving glory to God? Because if you read Romans 13, he put them all there. Every authority is established by God. Well then, what if the authority is evil? Then you pray and you do the things within the structure that you have in a constructive way to change that evil government. And what if you can't? Then you be willing, which we'll look at in a moment, you're willing to suffer for righteousness' sake. Okay, point number, am I on point number three yet? Yeah, number three. We are to be a contradiction to the conventional wisdom of the day. If we start looking like, sounding like, and acting like the world, we have lost our difference. And we're not really walking in the footsteps of Jesus Christ because he turned the world upside down. And I've said this over and over again, but listen, Jesus was not killed because he fed 4,000 or 5,000. He was not killed because he healed Lazarus. He was not killed because he turned the water into wine. He was killed because he stood for the truth in a dark world. It was because of the truth. Verses 15 to 17. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. As free, yet not using your liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bond servants of God, honor all the people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. In an atmosphere of anarchy and violence, we should be standing out as God's servants, walking in freedom, and yet using our freedom for good and not for destruction. We should be the voice of reason in a land where there is no reason anymore, it seems. No logic. Logic has gone out the window. We assume someone's guilty before they're even tried. And we can be just as guilty of that as any other side. We're called to honor all people. Oh, wait, even our enemies. Well, how can you honor your enemy? How can you honor one who holds uh, positions that are totally, um, totally opposite of, of, of your positions that are biblical and is totally against the position of life? To me, that's the biggie, life. How can you honor that person? 
Well, you don't honor their viewpoints. You don't honor their actions. You honor them as a creation of God for whom Jesus Christ came and died for so that they might be redeemed and set free from the bondage that they are in in their lives. If you're a believer, you must believe that God can still redeem. When you stop believing that men and women are redeemable, we might as well hang it up and stop meeting together and worshiping this one named Jesus because we're not believing what he came to do. Someone said, well, how can you pray for so-and-so? Because I believe everyone can be redeemed. There have been presidents I've liked. There have been presidents I haven't liked. I prayed equally for both. Why? Because God can redeem any man or woman in any position. You know, King Darius was a rough dude. And King Cyrus was a rough dude. Let's start out with him. Because he was first. He was the guy who threw the coup in the word coup. He came in to the Babylonians and decimated them. There was murder, intrigue, all under this king. This king that then receives a revelation from God to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. How does that happen? God can redeem and change any heart. Who even then turns around and proclaims that God, Jehovah God, is the only true God to worship. In that culture, can God save our president, our senators, our congressmen, our congresswomen? Yes. Has he? Yes. Over and over and over again. So we are a contradiction to the conventional wisdom. The conventional wisdom says, once a scumbag, always a scumbag. Once a loser, always a loser. Once lost, always lost. And we say no. I am living testimony that God redeems even the vilest sinner. He redeemed the Apostle Paul, who was a murderer. He can redeem anyone by His grace and mercy. Number four, we need to be seen as persons, a person who's willing to suffer for righteousness' sake. You know, that that is a tough one, and Verses 18 to 20, it says, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable if because of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults you take it patiently, but when you do good and suffer... You take it patiently. This is commendable before God. Now, was Peter advocating slavery? Was he? No, but he was using an example that would shock his listeners. You got to remember that this letter was written to the believers from the diaspora in verses 1 and 2. And those were Jewish believers that lived and had been scattered through the dispersion of the Babylonian and Assyrian captivity. They had received the gospel, and they were primarily Jewish of origin. origin. And so for a Jew to hear about slavery, 
that is the most offensive thing you could talk to a Jew about, about being a slave. Because in their history, they were 400 years under the slave boot of Egypt, weren't they? And set free from God. Why do you think they were looking so much for Jesus to be a great warrior to lead them out of the Roman Empire, the Roman uh, Empire's uh, jurisdiction over their lives? Because it smacked too much of being the slavery again unto Egypt. It was offensive to them. And so Peter says something very offensive to them. He says, servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. Wait a minute, that's not fair. Be a good citizen even when, even when the tax laws you know, don't, don't benefit you. Wait, that's not fair. You know, go 55 when you want to go 85. That's not fair. Everyone else is going 85. It's not fair. It's not about being fair. It's about the concept of doing what's right because it's right of being a God-doer, one who acts according to the Word of God, even when it's going to cost him something. Now this includes civil disobedience when civil disobedience is needed. But civil disobedience is rarely needed. Can I say that? The only way civil disobedience is needed is if we are called by our government to do something that would make us violate our faith in Christ. When Peter and the apostles were told not to preach anymore in the name of Jesus, they decided we can't obey that injunction. And so they disobeyed and were thrown into prison. And they were then released by the Lord and they were back in the temple preaching the gospel again. And, and the, the leaders of the Jews came to them, didn't we charge you not to speak anymore in that name? And they said, well, whether we should obey man or God, you need to decide we're going to obey God. And so they were willing to be thrown into jail for their faith. But let me tell you, you don't like one thing that the government does or one thing that you have to do in your job or one thing that makes you, you know, just, I don't prefer that. That is not civil disobedience. That's just disobedience. When a football player takes a knee on the football field, when the Star Spangled Banner is, is playing and they're, General managers said, we will not take the knee, and they do take the knee. That is not civil disobedience. That is disobedience as an employee to an employer, regardless of what you think about the issue. And so we've used, we've thrown around that civil disobedience too much. You've got to be willing to suffer for doing what's right. That means that if doing what's right is going to cost you in your pocketbook, and that's where it really hurts, doesn't it? Then you're willing to take the hit for the glory of God. If doing what's right costs you your job, and I was faced with that many times. You know that we own a candle company, and several times, and I started the candle company for our company, Several times, one of the brothers gets a little bit greedy, sees all this uh, waste wax that we have, and he says, now, if we added black dye to that waste wax, we could make these black candles. And I said, no, because you know within the Hispanic culture what those black candles are used for. 
They're not used to light a, a wonderful dining table where you have china and silverware and you, you invite your wife for a romantic dinner and you put this black tall glass cylinder candle in the center. No, they're used for voodoo and they're used for black magic. And you know that. And I said, if you decide to do that, several times I've had to do this, about four or five times over the course of 25 years, I said, you can do whatever you want because you own the company. But the minute that you pour your first black candle, you will be looking for a new person. I will leave that day immediately. I could have been out of a job. Five times I've had to do that. And don't think I'm going to have, not have to do that again. Because he gets squirrely every three to five years. <laughs> and I love you, George, if you ever hear this tape. I love you with all my heart. But no black candles. I finally told him, go talk to your priest. Ask your priest if that's a good idea. He did. Came back. I said, what did your priest say? He said, I don't want to talk about it. Number five, we need to be a living example of the life of Christ. You know, the, 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 the world doesn't know who Jesus is. They don't know what he's like. And if we act like the world, they're never going to see what he's like. You know, 1 John chapter 4 says, Beloved, um, no one has ever seen God, but when we love one another, God abides in us. What does that mean? It means that... Jesus doesn't just appear. He lives in us. And when we love one another, guess who they get to see? Jesus. I'll never forget, I was at college, uh, young people, I was, I was walking down the quad. I'm going to put the scripture up here. You can look at it while I'm, while I'm doing this. But I was walking in the quad. I was, a, I was a Jesus freak. That was, you know, early on. And I had this big old cross that would bang on around when I walk. And I had long hair. And I was just going like that. This guy said, man, Isaac, he said, what's wrong with you? And of course, what do you do when you're a Jesus freak during the Jesus movement? You say, I'm high on Jesus. Yes, sir. That's what I said. I'm high on Jesus. And he ran. He didn't want to get high on Jesus. But, but listen, if we don't show the world who he is, you, Paul says this, you're living epistles, known and read by all men. Now, you say, well, I'm not going to let anybody read me. I want to tell you, they're already reading you, folks. Everywhere you go, every restaurant you go to, every place you fill up your gas tank, every store you fill your cart with groceries, wherever you are, they're reading you, they're watching you. And what are they going to read? Now, that can sound a little intimidating because you say, well, golly, I, I don't measure up. I don't measure up. There's so much more I could say about this. But we have to realize this, that, that in this whole struggle to be like Christ, we're not fighting against people. We're fighting against principalities and powers. And we can be victorious. And even though it doesn't seem possible to be that light, he will, he will make us that light as we draw upon His grace and as we stand against those struggles in the full armor of God. Jesus, in His final hours leading to the cross, is our example. How do we overcome the enemy? How do we stand 
and, and live like Christ in the midst of a perverse world through the blood of the Lamb, through the word of our testimony. And we love not our lives unto death. That brings me to my last point. And the last point ties in with this point. And there was so much more I was going to say about that, but I just want to focus on this last point. The world needs to see us as a sinner saved by grace. I, will, I believe that they will not see Jesus in us unless they see us as sinners saved by grace. Some, some believers will take offense to that. I'm no longer a sinner. I'm a child of the King. Don't call me a sinner. Well, did you sin yesterday? Well, yeah. Well, how about the day before? Yeah. And the day before that? Well, yeah. Sin plus sin plus sin equals sinner. Isn't that true? Now, we're not a sinner that's lost. We're not a sinner that's hopeless. We're a sinner saved and empowered by grace. Not only saved, but empowered by grace. And that's a good thing. But if people don't recognize in our lives, and if we're not showing them this truth, who Himself bore our sins in His own body on the tree, that we having died to sins might live for righteousness, by whose stripes we are healed. You were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Where's Tim come back up? Let me tell you, if they don't recognize that we recognize that apart from Christ we're nothing. And, and do you recognize that this morning? Do you really know that apart from Christ you're nothing? Apart from Christ, I can't be a good husband to Karen. I can't be a good father to Hannah. I can't be a good pastor to this church. I can't be a good friend to Leo. Apart from Christ, I'm going to think about myself. I'm going to act on my own behalf. I'm going to just go right back to the selfish Kirk that I was before Christ got me. And I need to let people know that. People look at me and say, well, you're... Yeah, well, you say you want to let people see Jesus in you. Uh, I don't really... Well, say, listen, I'm not saying I'm perfect. And I'm not using that as an example to sin and then just get away with it. What I'm doing is saying I recognize that I'm a work in progress. Do you recognize that this morning? You're a work in progress. Here's the good news. God isn't done with you yet. He's got a lot more He wants to do in you. And if you let people know that, and if you tell them, listen, I need Jesus every moment, every day, every minute, not only will they see Jesus in you, but they'll see an authenticity and an honesty that will attract them to Jesus. Because who wants to follow a Jesus that's ready just to squash you the minute you make your first mistake? Who wants to serve a God who's just going to sit on His throne and judge you every time you turn the corner? Who wants to follow a Father, on the other hand, who has His arms open wide to you and is in fact running to you when you have been running away from Him? Who wants to serve a Savior who is going to redeem and save and cleanse and purify and make you the person that you want to be each and every day of your life? 
Final point I have is this as you stand. We are to live as a constant testimony that all men and women can be redeemed. That is the, the, the major takeaway I want to give you this morning. You know, our lives are to show about the love of God, the truth of God, to show that we're willing to lay down everything for this truth that we believe in. But it's also to show men and women that we are works in progress and that God can redeem them and save them. If we put off an air of superiority, if we stoop to the same tactics that the world is using, if we argue and bicker and fight, if all those things stream out of our mouths and hearts, then how are they going to see the love, the compassion, the forgiveness of Christ? I'll tell you how. A broken and contrite heart is a sacrifice not only God accepts, but it's a sacrifice that people understand. They don't understand the other sacrifices. They can't identify with them. But an authentic believer who is authentically honest, who is daily being redeemed and changed by Jesus Christ, that's the believer, an unbeliever, is gone.
to give you one thing to, to, to use as an exercise this week as you go out from this place. All of you get attacked by the enemy, right? You hear that whisper in, in, in your ear, you're not worthy or you failed too much or, or you know, maybe uh, your prayer is not going to be answered, all these things. But mostly he likes to just attack our worthiness. He's called the accuser of the brethren. He says he daily tries to stand before God and accuse us day and night. He accused Job before the Father. And, and he comes and he tries to tell you that about yourself. Can I give you just something different maybe to think about? Instead of arguing with him, just say, this may sound a little strange, but hear me out. Say, thank you for reminding me that my only strength is in Christ alone. And I agree with you. I am broken. I am a sinner. I am something that on my own, I'm worth nothing, but I have one who's called me by, by my name. And I have one that I can run to right now and he'll embrace me. Thank you for reminding me to run to him. I run to Jesus. And Jesus now embraced me. And the Bible says, if that we resist the devil, he will flee. And there's no greater way to resist the devil than to be in the arms of Jesus. Because he cannot stand in the presence of the living God. The glorified Christ. And as you agree that you need Jesus, you are in the place of victory in your life.